The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Well, as we come to Genesis 22, we come to one of the truly great chapters in the Old Testament. And I had originally intended to preach three messages concerning this, but now I intend to preach four messages concerning this. Some of you are greatly relieved. But uh, there is so much truth in here and so much uh, uh, to connect to our present walk with Christ that I don't want to miss any of the things that the Lord has shown me and throw them off for lack of time. So uh, what I propose is that the first two messages, this week and two weeks from now, we're going to focus on, on Abraham himself, his faith, the challenge of the trial for him, and how his faith was vindicated. This week we're going to look at the difficulties of the trial itself, what it was that God asked of him and how it must have been for him. The next time, we're going to look at the mystery of this statement that the Lord says, now I know that you fear God. And what that means for us concerning our justifying faith and the relationship between faith and deeds. After that, the third week, we're going to look at the parallels, the gospel parallels between what Abraham was commanded to do and what God did in his son Jesus Christ. We're going to see the gospel in prophetic typology, predictions, just acted out in history in the third message. And the fourth, we're going to look at one phrase in particular and the precision of prophecy. Zero it in on this statement. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Those are the four messages. And I'd like to begin by looking at the nature of the test of God in Abraham's life. I believe that each one of us will be tested. And each one of us will be tested most severely. I believe that a testing of the faith is, is essential to what God is working in each one of us. It's one of the reasons he's left us here on earth and has not taken us home. So that we might be tested as Abraham was. The tests will be small or great. They will be light or severe. But they will come from the hand of God. They're not going to come from the devil. It's not because the devil's been attacking us. But rather that God is testing us. And it's my desire that when your time of testing comes, that you will shine like the sun. That you will rejoice in it. Not murmur against your heavenly father and wonder why he's bringing this hard thing to you. But that you will trust him the way Abraham did. That you will rejoice in it. And so God will in effect be putting you on display. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a bowl. But they put it up on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. God wants to light you up and put you on a stand. And he does it so often through these tests. In 1849, a dusty Californian prospector came in to an office and put a large yellowish rock on the countertop of a place run by a New Yorker named John Little Moffat. The prospector had sold everything that he owned and had gone west in the gold rush of 1849, and this was the fruit of his labor. And he was there in the assayer's office to try to find out what it was. Was it genuine gold or was it fool's gold? Now, Moffat had developed a technique during, a smaller, during smaller gold rushes in Georgia and North Carolina of assaying the mineral. 
He would take some of it, a precise amount. He would weigh it, wrap it in lead foil, and fire it in a furnace at 1,100 degrees C. And then uh, he would remove all base materials and then reweigh the sample and declare its carat level and how much pure gold there was there. And then he would offer to, and it usually was taken up, to strike it and mint it into gold coins worth $20 each. Those things are collector's items now. Because eventually they became recognized as legal tender. The quality was so high. And his methodology of assaying the gold was adopted and used for over 100 years. Now this is the deal. God is going to take your faith and put it in the assayer's fire to find out what's in there. And he intends to display what he's put on, put into you by faith. Put it on display for yourself and for the world to see. And that's exactly what's going on here in Genesis 22 with Abraham's test. Now we know, looking back, reading about it, what Abraham was never told. Namely, this is only a test. Now it's nice when we're told this is only a test, but Abraham wasn't told that. Look what it says in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. The basic idea here, which I get, I get immediately, is God tests his children. Now, the Hebrew word has to do with this process of assaying to find out what's in it. It's, it's a, a form of revelation to uncover what the metal is. And that's exactly what was happening here. It is different than a temptation, which the devil does, which entices and pulls us toward evil. That's not what's going on here. Rather, that God was uncovering and exposing what was genuinely in Abraham's heart and in his faith. And the Lord does this to his children. In Deuteronomy 8.2, it says, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and test you in order to know what was in your heart to see whether you would obey his commandments. You see, God was testing Israel at that point to know what was in their heart. Now, how does God test us? Well, in a variety of ways. He tests us with fire. He tests us with hardship and with difficulty. Tests us with disease, with illness, and with the death of loved ones. But he also tests us with prosperity. He tests us with praise. It says in uh, Proverbs 27, 21, the crucible for the silver and the fire for gold, but man is tested by the praise that he receives. What does praise do to you? Does it go to your head? Does it make you arrogant and independent from God? Or do you give it up to God and give him the glory immediately? Praise is a form of test as well. But we identify tests for the most part as harsh and negative circumstances that come. And how we respond to it is the issue. Now, that's how God tests us. The question is, why does he test us? Why does he do this? Well, first and foremost, above all things, God tests us for his own glory. Trials are woven into the tapestry of redemptive history, the light and dark threads of what we consider good providence, the good things that happen, the things that are delightful to us, and also those harsher things in which we're tempted to cry out, God, what are you doing to me? They're woven together, not just in your life, but in the lives of all of our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout all the ages of the church. And what results is a magnificent tapestry for his glory, 
of how his children were more than conquerors through him who loved us. And God has put them on display. It's for his own glory that he tests us. Secondly, to reveal his character. God delights to reveal himself to those who will be obedient by faith in the midst of trials. He wants to put himself on display. And so he tests us to demonstrate his faithfulness. And God demonstrates his faithfulness and his character the most when we need him the most. When the trial is severe. So God wants to show himself to you. And so he'll orchestrate providentially trials in your life to test you. And to show you what he is like. He also does it to show you what you are like. To reveal your character and your nature as well. Scripture says in Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward a man according to his conduct, according to what his deeds deserve. I believe the tests come to search our hearts and to reveal to us, among other things, how much evil there is in there, how much self-reliance there is, how much faithlessness, and how much we needed a Savior. Oh, how God hates our pride. And so it's during these testing times that we get to know ourselves and we find out just how much we needed Christ. He also does it to increase our faith-filled dependence on Him so that we will rely on Him more and not on ourselves. As Paul said in Corinthians, these trials have come to teach us to rely on Him who raises the dead and not on ourselves. If even the Apostle Paul had to be taught that lesson, how much more do we? To stop relying on ourselves and our ability and what we can do. And to teach us to rely only on God. To trust in Him and depend on Him. And finally, He does it to build our character. He does it to shape us and to train us for future good works. As it says in James 1, 2-4, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you will be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Reminds me of the way that they made swords out of iron and the way that they would heat it up, get it red hot and pound it and pound it and stick it back in the coals. And when they stuck it in the coals, carbon was getting on the surface and then it was pounded in and it's the carbon that made the, made the iron almost like a form of steel, tough and strong, able to stand up in the day of battle. And so these tests and trials come to make us stronger and so we're more fit for his service. So that's why God tests us. Now Abraham's test was of a unique nature because Abraham's life is being put up in a prophetic display. And it seems to me that the test was created for pain. Especially the way that God speaks to him and tells him, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And sacrifice them as a burnt offering. Every phrase, it seems, designed for pain. I was reading uh, a while ago something written by Dr. James Dobson. And he was talking about pain. And, and the name of the book is When God Doesn't Make Sense. And there's, there's times you go through these trials and you're wondering, why is this trial coming into my life? What have I done and what is happening here? And he, he relates a story about pain and his son, Ryan, who had a terrible ear infection. Listen to what Dr. Dobson wrote. Ryan had a terrible ear infection when he was three years old that kept him and us awake most of the night. After examining Ryan, the doctor told us that the infection had adhered itself to the eardrum and could only be treated by pulling the scab loose with a wicked little instrument. You parents are wincing, I can tell. He warned that the procedure would hurt 
and instructed us to hold our son tightly on the table. I swallowed hard and wrapped my 200-pound, 6-foot-2-inch frame around the little toddler. It was one of the toughest moments in my career as a parent. What made it so emotional was the long mirror that Ryan was facing as he lay on the examining table. This made it possible for him to look directly at me as he screamed for mercy. I really believe I was in greater agony at that moment than my terrified little boy. What hurt me was the look on his face. Though he was screaming and couldn't speak, he was talking to me with those big blue eyes and saying, Daddy, why are you doing this to me? I thought you loved me. I never thought you would do anything like this. How could you? Please, please stop hurting me. Now, that's what the Lord has to endure whenever he puts us through pain, you see. And we look up and we're wondering, why are you doing this to me? But it had to be done. And there's no way that little toddler could understand the procedure and what had to be done. The only thing for it was that it had to, had to be done. And that Dr. Dobson had to hold him down so that he could get through it. Now, my desire is that we would learn to not question God during that time. To not look up in the mirror and say, God, I don't know you anymore. I don't know why you're doing this to me. Because that's a time that the devil has opportunity. He can work at that point to get you to question and to wonder about God. But look at the language that God uses in verse 2. He says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. It seems to me that every phrase hurt more than the last one. George Herbert, in commenting on this, said, Each word was like a case of knives cutting at the patriarch's heart. Take your son. What? A father slay his own son? Would that not make Abraham a monster in his own eyes? And how could he face his wife Sarah? and tell her that the child born in her old age was now killed at his own hand. Take your only son. Oh, what a painful memory this was, because he'd already been commanded to send away Ishmael, and that was hard enough. And now the remaining son is Isaac, and he's to sacrifice him? And then the word Isaac, the word means laughter. And what a flood of memories that must have brought back. You know, it's the memories that are painful when the child dies. And the memories of the laughter as Abraham in chapter 17 fell down and laughed with joy at what God was doing. And then how Sarah initially laughed through unbelief, but then laughed with joy when she marveled at being able to give birth and to suckle an infant at, at her old age, the name Isaac. And then he said, whom you love. This is a twisting of the knife. You love him. He's a special child. You do everything together. Your heart is wrapped up in him. You cherish him. He's your, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. He's the focus of all your hopes and your future. He's the focus of the promises. Your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And sacrifice him. But what kind of God is commanding this? Who are you, God? Are we now like Molech? We're going to offer up human sacrifice? How could I explain this to the pagans around as I've been preaching a holy God, how could I explain this to Abimelech who heard about the gift of this miracle son, Isaac, and sacrifice him as a burnt offering? I don't even get to bury him. I don't even get to touch his cold forehead. I've got to watch him burn up, and I've got to be the one to burn him. And I've got to smell the smoke. 
How could it be more horrible? It seemed every phrase was designed for pain. And the real test to me seemed to be, who are you, God? Who are you that you are commanding this of me? This was, brothers and sisters, a mature test for a mature faith. This was at the highest level. And God had been preparing our patriarch, our father in faith, Abraham, for it for his whole lifetime. It wasn't a beginner test. This was an advanced test. This was, in some respects, a final test, a final exam. And uh, step-by-step preparation. If you look at verse 1, and uh, NIV doesn't do a great job, so let's go with the ESV on this. It says, after these things, God tested Abraham. After these things, after what things? Well, after perhaps the immediate events of chapter 21, but I think after a lifetime of these things, after all of the shaping that God had done in Abraham's life. This was a mature test for mature faith. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said about that. The great test came after nine trials, each of them more searching and remarkable. After he had passed through a great fight of affliction, And had, through the process, been strengthened and sanctified, he was called to endure a still sterner test. From which fact, it is well to learn that God does not put heavy burdens upon weak shoulders. And he does not allot ordeals fit only for full-grown men to those who are but babes. He educates our faith, testing it by trials which increase little by little in proportion as our faith has increased. He only expects us to do man's work and to endure man's afflictions when we have passed through the childhood state and have arrived at the stature of men in Christ Jesus. Expect then, beloved, your trials to multiply as you proceed towards heaven. Do not think that as you grow in grace, the path will become smoother beneath your feet and the heavens serener over your heads. On the contrary, reckon that as God gives you greater skill as a soldier, he will send you upon more arduous enterprises. And as he more fully fits your ship to brave the tempest and the storm, so will he send you out upon more boisterous seas and upon longer voyages that you may honor him and still further increase in holy confidence. Let us be warned then that we are never to reckon upon rest from tribulation this side of the grave. It could be that your most severe test awaits your deathbed. I don't know. And that God will step by step prepare you to give glory to him by the way you pass out of this world. I don't know. But he is shaping and preparing each one of his children by means of these wise tests. We see it in Abraham through his original call from Ur of the Chaldees. And years of calling upon the name of the Lord. Twenty-five years of waiting for this promised child. Many ups and downs. Sins with Pharaoh and with Hagar and with Abimelech. Weak moments. And spectacular revelations from God. The night under the starry skies. You know, when God made him a promise, so shall your offspring be. And then that magnificent and mysterious covenant-cutting ceremony in Genesis 15. And then the command for circumcision. And then the birth of Isaac, the promised one. All of these things shaped. And it could be that through all of that, Abraham's heart had gotten so wrapped up in this little boy. So wrapped up in Isaac that he couldn't let him go. You know, later in the Genesis account, there's a story of Jacob, and he loved a woman named Rachel, but he was swindled and had to marry her sister. And uh, so he really cherished the child that Rachel finally gave birth to, 
and that was Joseph. And then there was another one, and she gave birth to Benjamin, and, and she died in childbirth. Joseph was cruelly taken away from him. He believed that Joseph was dead. And so all he had left was little Benjamin, you know. And Judah testified to this unknown Egyptian leader who was Joseph. We'll get to that by and by. Do you not understand about my father? His heart is wrapped up with this boy. And if he dies, my father will die. Don't bring his gray head down to the grave in grief and sorrow. Well, it may be that Abraham had the same kind of affection for Isaac. I don't know. But so God tested him. And he was tested right to the uttermost. Three days' journey. How would you like that? Three days. Not three hours. You know, three days of thinking about this. Step by step going to the region of Moriah. And every step increasing pain. The text really highlights their togetherness. Look at it, verse 6 through 8. It says, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went, both of them, together. Do you see the togetherness? It says it again and again. And so there they are, together. And God waited until the last possible moment to stop the test. It's like, all right, three-day journey. One day in, sure looks like you're going that way. Let's call it off. You did it, you start, start on the way. No, one day, two days, three days. Up the mountain, the conversation... The whole thing. He builds the altar. How long did that take? He lays his son. He binds him up and lays him. Right to the end, he's reaching for the knife. And as he's perhaps even starting to move it toward his son Isaac, then and only then does God stop him. He's tested right to the uttermost. Look at Abraham's faith-filled and total obedience. First, it was immediate obedience. No hesitation. Look at verse 3. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey... And he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God had told him about. Immediate obedience. As some have said, to delay is to disobey. And so we're called on to obey immediately when God tells us to do something. Abraham was immediate and prompt in his obedience. He didn't linger. He didn't meditate. He didn't say, Lord, let me pray about this. And I'm not saying he didn't pray, but there's no prayer in the text. He just does it. He does what he's commanded to do. And he certainly doesn't complain or murmur. Doesn't say whether he told Sarah what he was doing. <laughs> now that would have been quite a conversation. But this, the text is silent about that encounter if it ever happened. Immediate obedience. Secondly, we see faith-filled obedience. And this is key because, you know, his obedience is based upon a lifetime of hearing God speak to him. Faith doesn't come out of nowhere. Faith comes, the scripture says, from hearing the word. Faith comes from hearing the word. And so you want greater faith? You hear the word more. You want stronger faith? Hear the word. Hear the word. That's where faith comes from. I went through and I extracted all of the direct quotes from God to Abraham in the scripture. I extracted them and put them on one sheet. And it came out to 1,133 words in the English translation I was looking at. Over 1,000 words, 1,100 words God had spoken to him. Page after page. I then categorized them. 19 separate commands, 12 statements, 2 questions, and 40 promises. Incredible. God had given him a river of revelation. 
And so we see that this is faith-filled obedience based on having heard God speak to him again and again. Thirdly, it is practiced obedience. Notice that it's based on habit. I told you that 19 commands God had given Abraham, and Abraham had obeyed each and every one. God commanded, leave your country and your people and go to the land I will show you. Abraham up and went. God commanded, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abraham brought that whole list of things. God commanded, no longer shall your name be Abram, but it shall be Abraham. And so Abraham changed his name. He commanded concerning his wife, no longer shall her name be Sarai, but her name shall be Sarah. And her name was changed. He called her Sarah. God commanded, every male among you, including you, shall be circumcised. And Abraham obeyed and was circumcised. God commanded, send away the slave woman and her son. And Abraham obeyed and sent, though it hurt him deeply. Abraham had established a pattern of obedience. And this is how God gets you ready also for your trial. You do what he tells you to do. You obey his command. And it was reasoned obedience. He used his reason. He used his rational capacity. He used his logic. Now, we talked about this in Sunday school. You know, some people think of faith and reason as diametrically opposed. They're just different things. I was reading about uh, this evolutionist scientist named Richard Dawkins. Perhaps you've heard of him. He likens religion, get this, to an infectious virus that readily replicates spreading its falsehoods. That's what faith is. That's what religion is. He embraces science. He embraces human reason. And religion is like an evil virus. And so he would say faith is irrational. Faith is illogical. Faith is unreasonable. But that is not true. Because this is what happened. You see, Abraham took as a basic starting point, there is a God who created heaven and earth. And then I have had an experience of hearing God speak to me. God has spoken his word to me again and again. And his word has proven true again and again. And he has predicted something that no one could ever have seen. A child born to me in my old age, 100 years old, and Sarah, whose womb is dead, 90 years old, God has proven trustworthy. Furthermore, God has made specific promises to me concerning this boy, Isaac. He said to me, Genesis 17, 19, Your wife, Sarah, will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. It says the same thing in Genesis 21, 12. It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Next, he weighed God's command. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, the one about whom I promised, and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. He said, hmm, how am I going to put this together? Well, Hebrews 11 tells us how he put it together. Listen to this. Hebrews 11, 17 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Do you see that faith and reason were working together in Abraham's life? He was reasoning from the basis of faith promises, but it was a rational process. Now, this is twice now in the NIV. I'm sorry, but I have to tell you the truth about that translation. I love the translation, but it gives us a wrong impression. In Hebrews 11, it says, uh, Hebrews 11:18. it says concerning Abraham, he who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though... 
God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Can I tell you the Greek doesn't say even though? No other translation says even though. The NIV put it in there because it doesn't really make a lot of sense, you see. But to Abraham it made perfect sense. The only way I'm going to do this is if God has given me a promise already concerning Isaac. Suppose there had been no promise concerning Isaac. Just that through one of your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. And Isaac had never been named. Do you realize how tough the test would have been then? He would have no basis for thinking that God would raise Isaac from the dead. He might lose him forever. You see what I'm talking about? But instead, he said, no, no, no. Isaac is the child of promise. God said so. So the only thing I can figure is he's going to raise him from the dead. That's what he reasoned. Never let anyone tell you that faith and reason are enemies. They're not. They're good friends. They work together. It's just that faith-filled people accept more data and more information than unbelievers do. We accept the word of God. And we reason out based on that. And so, it was a reasonable faith. And finally, it was... Total obedience right to the uttermost, as we've already seen. Abraham went right to the end. Verse 9, when they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And so we see the obedience of Abraham. It's a pattern of Christ, although not perfect. Remember what Jesus said in John 17, praying to his heavenly Father, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Jesus is the only human being that ever can say, I did everything you wanted me to do, Father. Everything. But here, Abraham is a pattern of total obedience. So we see immediate obedience, faith-filled, practical or habitual obedience, a reasoned obedience, and a total obedience. And then as a result, we see God's commendation. And this is where we're going to branch off. We'll talk more about it in two weeks. The angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Now let me tell you something. It's an incredible mystery, this statement. Now I know that you fear God. The omniscient, the all-seeing one, the one, all the days of your life were written in his book before one of them came to be. He's saying these words, now I know that you fear God. We're going to, God willing, plumb the depths of that in two weeks. What timeless applications, lessons can we take from this? First of all, as I've been saying to you, God will test your faith. He will. If you're a child of God, he will test it. He will bring hard things into your life. He will test you with pain. He will test you with suffering, with setbacks. He will test you with sickness and even with the death of loved ones. He will also test you with praise and prosperity and success. He will test you in many ways. He does it for his own glory and for your good. The question is, how will you respond? I will never forget what a professor told me. In, uh, I was in one of the seminary classes, and he told me of a family that was in the church that he pastored. And I, I just still to this day can't believe that this happened. This was a loving, godly Christian family. They had three children. And each one of their children were taken from them in three separate incidents over two years. Now you stop and think what that would feel like. No children left, all of them gone, separately, two accidents and one terminal illness. And he said that at the funeral, they sang at the family's request, how firm a foundation. We're going to close with that in a few moments. And the final line of that says, That soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not.
desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell, should endeavor to shake. I'll never, no never, no never forsake. And they put a child's name under each one of those nevers. And they were trusting in God to get them through the most severe trial they'd ever faced in their lives. And they knew the faithfulness of God while at the same time they knew the pain that that trial alone can bring. My question is, are you ready to trust God through the trials he has in mind for you? Some of you have already been through great trials. I don't know what God still has in store for you. But you should testify to those who are, have yet to go through it. God has been faithful to me. And some of you are going through some trials now. Trust in him. Please don't murmur. I can tell you as a church historian, human suffering has been the biggest barn door bringing bad theology into the church that I've ever seen. Because I lost my wife. I lost my son. I lost this suffering. I went through this suffering. Therefore, God is not sovereign. Or God is... I've seen it again and again. Don't deny in the dark what you learned in the light. Trust in him in those times. We'll talk, God willing, two times later, about two, two weeks from now, faith apart from obedience is dead. I want to say one final word about the nature of worship. Look at verse 5 with me as we close. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there to worship. Go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Notice he says, we will come back to you. That is his testimony of faith. Isn't that beautiful? But look at what he said before that. We will worship. That's how Abraham looked at this. I meditated on that for a long time. We're doing a Wednesday night class on worship, and if you have time, you should come, because we've learned so much about worship. You know, I, I think it's interesting. You talk about congregations that have worship wars and how that all works and style of music and all Let me tell you something. Do you realize how much greater and bigger worship is than all of that? In effect, Abraham looked on the sacrifice of his own son as worship, and this is how I've come to understand it. God, in effect, is saying, in the same way that he did with Abraham, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with us, graciously give us all things? That is God's stance toward you if you're a Christian. Because you have had faith in Christ, God's stance is, everything that I have is yours. I'll give it to you. It's all yours. The question is, what is your stance toward God? Can you say back to God the same thing he's saying to you in Christ? Can you come on Sunday morning and then seven days a week and say, God, all I have is yours. I'm not going to withhold Isaac. I'm not going to withhold anything. I'm not going to withhold my body, my time, my money. I'm not going to withhold anything. I'm not going to withhold my children. And so, in effect, like Jesus said so beautifully in Luke, I mean, in, in John 17, he prays to his Father and he says, All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. Is that your stance in worship? My desire is that we would be purified and strengthened and be true worshipers, able to offer to God a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him every day, and lay down whatever Isaacs he calls on you to lay down, all of them, on the altar. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.